Howdy friends, plant people. Here we go. It's great to have you back here with me today. For new listeners, my name is Simon Hill, physiotherapist, currently finishing my master's in nutrition and host of this show, The Plant Proof Podcast. Each week, I get to sit down with super cool folks from all walks of lives, doctors, nutritionists, athletes, people who have overcome chronic illness, and so much more to have conversations that can help all of us become more mindful and conscious of the way that we live. In today's episode, it was an absolute honor to sit down with Dr. Dean Ornish, one of the pioneers of lifestyle medicine, and talk about the research that he has conducted and his philosophy for preventing and reversing chronic disease. Dr. Dean Ornish is an extremely accomplished doctor and scientist. He has published multiple clinical intervention trials in peer-reviewed journals, showing that chronic disease can actually be halted in its tracks and in many cases reversed. Over the decades, time and time again, he has had to contend with the Atkins diet and other reincarnations of the low-carb diet And still to this day, the dietary intervention that he uses is the only diet ever shown to reverse cardiovascular disease. It would be really easy for Dean to sit back and let others carry on with the road he has paved, but he's certainly showing no signs of slowing down. He and his wife, Anne, have just released their new book, Undo It, which I've read a few times now and was very fortunate to to get a signed copy when I caught up with Dean. If anyone listening has chronic disease or a friend or family member does, get this book in your hands, in their hands. It will add more vitality to your life, to their life, and more than likely add more years. The day I caught up with Dean, he had patients with Alzheimer's congregating in his clinic as part of a new clinical trial he is running, looking at lifestyle intervention for patients with Alzheimer's. Truly a man in the trenches, dedicated to empowering people and bettering human health. In this episode, one of the things that we talk about is a compound called TMAO, or trimethylamine nitric oxide. I thought I would do a bit of a summary in the intro so that when it comes up in conversation, you have a little bit more background. This molecule, TMAO, is a net product of carnitine and choline metabolism. What does that mean? When carnitine and choline are metabolized, if one has a certain type of gut bacteria, this will result in the production of TMA, which is then converted to TMAO in the liver. TMAO has been shown to increase one's chance of developing cardiovascular disease. And as Dr. Dean Ornish says in this episode, maybe even more of a contributing factor than cholesterol. Okay, so who has the bacteria in their gut that can produce TMA as a byproduct of carnitine and choline metabolism? This is where it gets very, very interesting, friends. Numerous studies at the Cleveland Clinic have shown If you feed an omnivore a steak, which is rich in carnitine, or even give them a carnitine supplement or choline supplement, 
they will produce notable amounts of TMA. These researchers then went on to convince a long-term vegan in the name of science to eat a steak. And what did they find? Next to zero TMA production. It seems vegetarians and more so vegans do not have the bacteria that produces this TMA molecule. Probably one of the major reasons why vegans have significantly lower cardiovascular risk in the major population studies and why multiple intervention trials using a low-fat plant-based diet have been able to show significantly reduced cardiac events compared to control groups. The trial that Dean and I talk about compared a four-week diet of Atkins, which is a high-fat, low-carb, animal-based diet, versus a calorie-matched, low-fat, plant-based diet and found significantly more TMAO production during the Atkins diet phase. What's really cool though, is if you're an omnivore and you stop eating animal products, it only takes about 28 days for your bacteria to change to the point where you no longer produce TMA. So there's reason to be optimistic, only four weeks. All right, friends, time to get into this episode and hear from Dean himself. With the Alzheimer's trial going on and the fact I was flying home to Australia on this day, we kept this one nice and tight to fit into one hour. I hope you enjoy it. I'll see you on the other side. All right, Dr. Dean Ornish, welcome to the Plant Proof Podcast. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. It's it's a real pleasure to be able to sit down with you, someone that you know I've, I've followed a lot of your work and, and read your books and and read all of the clinical trials that you you have done yourself. So just just a pleasure from the outset to sit down with someone who has contributed so much to this space of, of lifestyle medicine. Thank you. Well, it's great to be here. And thank you for all your great work as well and all the people you're reaching. You know, to me, awareness is always the first step in healing. So thanks for raising awareness and for so many people. Now, we should probably paint the picture for the listeners. I've been to San Fran a few times and, mm-hmm. and every single time I come here, I just am fascinated by how beautiful it is. And we're in a place now, correct me if I pronounce this incorrectly, is it Sausalito? Mm-hmm. Sausalito. So this this actually reminds me a little bit of Sydney down here, sort of by the harbour, but with a, a few more mountains. It's pretty, <laughs> it's pretty incredible down here. Yeah, well, I've been to Sydney. It's beautiful as well. Sausalito is just the other side of the Golden Gate Bridge. One side is San Francisco, the other side is Sausalito, just to put it in context for your listeners. And how do you live around this area? We're in your office now, but do you live around here? I just live up the hill. Oh, beautiful. That makes the commute very easy. I would usually walk to work. <laughs> now, today, I think, I think the, the real aim of, of this episode is to really give the listeners some clarity of where the science sits around various dietary frameworks. There's a lot of clutter and there's a lot of noise out there. And this is something that certainly you would have had to have dealt with over, you know, many, you <laughs> many, many, many decades. So I, I don't think there's anyone better to sort of go through this with and just break it down in a really simple, palatable manner for people to to reduce some of that confusion and to give people a little bit more confidence in adding more plants to their plate. Why don't we kick things off by talking through your journey into medicine, why you initially wanted to become a doctor, mm-hmm. and then what inspired you to look at lifestyle interve- intervention and the clinical trials that you set up? 
Oh, gosh. Well, long, long ago in a galaxy far, far away over, uh, gosh, in 1972, I guess, a long time ago, I, when I was a freshman in college, I got suicidally and profoundly depressed. Uh, I thought I was stupid. I thought I had somehow managed to fool the admissions committee into thinking that I was qualified. And now that I was at a school with a bunch of really smart people, it was just a matter of time before they figured out what a big mistake they'd let, made in letting me in. And on top of that, I had a what I can only describe as a spiritual crisis was that I had a direct experience that nothing can really bring lasting happiness. And so the combination of feeling like I was stupid and would never amount to much, and even if I did, it wouldn't matter anyway, I thought, well, why don't I dead people look like they're peaceful? Why don't I just kill myself? So I was all set to do that. And I ran my body down so much that I got so sick with what's called infectious mononucleosis. I literally didn't have the energy to get out of bed. My parents got wind that all was not right with me, and they saw what a mess I was. I went home to Dallas, where I grew up, to recuperate, and in my mind, to get strong enough to kill myself. Meanwhile, my older sister, who had been kind of a child of the 60s, had benefited from studying with a ecumenical spiritual teacher named Swami Satchidananda. So my parents decided to have a cocktail party for the Swami. This was in Dallas in 1972. So you can imagine, even today, that would be weird, but yeah, especially wow. in 1972. <laughs> and so in walks this, there's an old saying that when the student is ready, the teacher appears, and that was certainly true for me. So in walks this guy who looks like central casting's idea of what a Swami should look like, you know, long white beard and saffron robes and the whole bit. And he came into our living room and he gave a little lecture and he started off by saying, nothing can bring you lasting happiness, which I'd already figured out, but he looked like he was glowing and I was ready to do myself in. I thought, what am I missing here? And he went on to say what almost sounds like a new age cliche, but it really turned my life around, which is that while nothing can bring lasting happiness, that we already have that. That's our nature to be happy and peaceful. And not being mindful of that, we end up running after so many things, thinking that, oh, if only I had more whatever, more money, more power, more accomplishment, more, more beauty, more whatever, then I'd be happy, then I'd be peaceful, then I wouldn't feel so lonely, then people would love me, and then everything would be good. And the whole advertising industry really reinforces that point of view. So once you set up that view of the world, what I didn't realize, and he helped me understand, was that no matter how it turns out, you generally don't feel good. Because until you get whatever that is, you feel bad. And then the stresses go way up. If someone else gets it and you don't, then you feel really bad. And it kind of reinforces that we live in, we think we live in this very competitive, hostile, dog-eat-dog, uh, zero-sum game world. The less, the more you get, the less there is for me. So you better really get it while you can. And even if we get it, it's great for a little bit. It's like, ah, it's seductive. Ah, I got it. Now I'm happy. But it generally doesn't last. It's like, invariably, it's soon followed by either now what, it's never enough. I remember later, a patient once told me, uh, I can't even enjoy the view from the mountain I've climbed, I'm already looking over at the next one. Or if it's not now what, it's often, so what, big deal. It doesn't really provide a lasting sense of meaning. And so, see people say things like, you know, the letdown that came from accomplishing something that I thought was going to really bring me happiness was so great that I make sure I've got a dozen projects going on at the same time so I can immediately shift my attention to something different. So what he said was that it's our nature to be happy and that these practices like meditation and yoga and other spiritual practices don't bring you a sense of peace. But what they help you do, at least temporarily, is to stop disturbing what's really already there. Now, that may sound like semantics and you know parsing words, but it, the implications are very profound because if it comes from out there, then everyone who has what I think I need has power over me. If it's within me, then I can do something about that. It's very empowering, not to blame myself, but to empower myself. Then I can say, okay, what am I doing that's disturbing my own inner sense of peace and well-being? And I can learn to stop doing that. And so these techniques 
literally help us quiet down our mind and body to experience what's already there. And then we can go out in the world and often accomplish even more without the anxiety and the stress that often get in the way. So I thought, okay, let me give this weird stuff a try and I'll move killing myself down to plan B. <laughs> you know? And so uh, I began to, I mean, I couldn't, I was so agitated, I couldn't even sit still long enough to meditate for a minute, you know, so I'd meditate while I was walking around. I decided, he told me if I ate a plant-based diet and I grew up in Texas and was eating meat, you know, five times a day, and that'd be a big change. So I said, okay, I'll let me do the whole thing and do some exercise and have more love and support in my life. So I began to get glimpses that I felt more peaceful. And that really turned my whole life around. So I was able to go back to school, did extremely well, got into medical school, and uh, decided to do that for a career. And then when I was in medical school, I was learning how to do bypass surgery, you know, where you cut people's chests open and bypass the clogged arteries with Michael DeBakey, the doctor who basically invented bypass surgery. And so we'd cut people open, we'd bypass their clogged arteries, he'd tell them they were cured. And more often than not, they'd go home and do all the things that had caused the problem in the first place. They'd eat junk food and not manage stress, not exercise. And more often than not, the bypasses would clog up. And so then we cut them open again, sometimes two or three times. And so for me, bypass surgery became a metaphor of an incomplete approach. We were literally bypassing the problem. We weren't treating the cause. And when I lecture now, I often, I've been showing for many decades, a cartoon of doctors that I had drawn busily mopping up the floor around a sink that's overflowing, but nobody's turning off the faucet. It's like, you know, when people get put on medications to lower their cholesterol or their blood pressure or their blood sugar, and they say, doctor, how long do I have to take these? What does the doctor usually say? Forever. That's right. It's like, how long do I have to mop up this floor of the sinks overflowing? Like forever. Like, well, why don't we turn off the faucet? Yeah. And the faucet, the cause are really these lifestyle choices that we make each day. And I think our unique contribution has been to use these very high-tech, expensive, state-of-the-art scientific measures to prove how powerful these very simple and low-tech and low-cost interventions can be. And the more diseases we study and the more underlying mechanisms we look at, the more evidence we have to show why these simple changes are so powerful and how quickly can people can get better. And so the Swami liked to make puns. People say, what are you, a Hindu? He'd say, no, I'm an undo. So the title of the book, you know, Undo It, is really kind of an homage to him as well as, you know, obviously to the uh, Nike uh, Just Do It. Yeah, yeah. So when, when you were actually doing the, the cardiac surgery that you were just talking about, at that stage, with with the science that was out then, what was the general understanding? Like what what did people think was causing the clogging of the arteries? People said that heart disease can't be reversed. You can only maybe you could slow down the rate at which you got worse. And people had an idea that diet and lifestyle factors were related, but you know, I I, I took off and began. I go into these places called libraries, which people don't go to anymore, and these things called books and <laughs> We've journals. We've got a mini library in here right now. I was having a look before this. Yeah. Good, <laughs> That's just a fraction of my books. It's a good collection of books in here. <laughs> but, uh, but the idea is that in dogs and cats and pigs and rabbits and monkeys, I learned back then, you could cause heart disease if you put them on a high-fat, high-cholesterol, animal-based diet, if you stress them, if you put them, made them smoke cigarettes, if you didn't let them exercise, and you could reverse it if you changed all those things, but nobody did it in people. I said, well, they said, oh, it's impossible. I said, well, why would, you know, humans aren't that different. Why would it be, you know, they said, oh, no, it can't be done. So one of the nice things about being a medical student is I took off a year between my second and third years of medical school, because you don't know enough, you're not fully programmed yet to, to know that things can't be done. So I took a year off and put 10 men and women who had really bad heart disease in a hotel for a month. 
and put them on this program, this lifestyle medicine program. And, and after, you, you put them in a hotel. I, I <laughs> actually asked every hotel in the city of Houston where I was in medical school, uh, would they donate 10 of their rooms to me for a month so I could do this? And everybody said no. And the very last hotel said, yeah, well, we'll do it. I, I, I uh, spoke with the chief of medicine, the chief of cardiology, and they agreed to donate the, the testing and to refer patients. Put them in a hotel for a month. It was just me and the cook. I did taught the meditation. I ran the groups. I gave the lectures. I did the exercise. I did everything except cook the that's food. That's incredible. That that's where it and, started. Like you know, real real grassroots clinical trial. <laughs> that's when it started. Just you know, do it. and that's one of the nice things about doing things in Texas is they have kind of this pioneering uh, ethos. Like you got this crazy idea, go for it. You know, it won't work, but you'll learn something. You know. So anyway, but it did work, and that was what was so exciting. And after a month, patients felt better. Their chest pain went away. People who couldn't walk across the street without getting angina or chest pain. They couldn't make love with their spouse. They couldn't play with their kids. They couldn't go back to work without getting chest pain. And within a, a few weeks, they were essentially pain-free. But they not only felt better, they were better in ways we could actually measure. We measured that the blood flow to the heart was improving in, in eight of the 10 patients. And that had never been shown before. How, how do you measure that? We used what was then a new test, which is now used everywhere, called a thallium scan. And thallium is a radioisotope. And what you do is you put someone on a treadmill and they run, and then they, you inject a small amount of this radioisotope and it goes where the blood goes. And then you can scan the heart and see how much part each part of the, part of the heart is getting. And we found that parts of the heart that weren't getting enough blood flow due to blockages in their in their coronary arteries were getting enough blood flow. So that's, that's an indirect measurement, like showing that their arteries are actually opening back up. It was a direct measure of blood flow. It wasn't measuring the blockages in the arteries. But I actually think the blood flow is even more important because okay. the blockages are only important to the degree that they affect blood flow. And there are other mechanisms besides the blockages that also affect blood flow. The arteries can constrict and blood clots can partially or completely clog the flow. You can grow new blood vessels called collaterals around the blockages. And so in many respects, the blood flow is really the bottom line. But it was also my first experience that when you're doing something that's really disruptive, that doesn't fit within the conventional wisdom, it's not met with universal acceptance, at least initially. You know, people said, oh, that's impossible. It can't be true. And you only had 10 patients and you didn't have a randomized control group. And yeah, yeah. how do you know they wouldn't have gotten better anyway because you didn't have a control group? And I said, well, Strictly speaking, it's true without a randomized control group, that's possible, but let's be real. How many patients have you ever seen get better like that? Well, that's beside the point. You know? So yeah. well, it was anyway, a starting point. it was a great starting point. It got me interested in this being my life's work. So I went back to school, finished my uh, MD over the next couple of years, then took another year off to do a second round. This time it was a randomized trial. And we used a test that measured how well the heart was pumping blood. And we found it got better after just three and a half weeks in the group that made these lifestyle changes, worse in the control group. And we published that in the uh, Journal of the American Medical Association back in uh, 1993. Went to Boston, to Harvard to do my medical residency, moved to San Francisco, went on the faculty of the University of California, San Francisco, and started a a nonprofit institute called the Preventive Medicine Research Institute, and began the most definitive study called the Lifestyle Heart Trial. And this time, we actually measure the blockages in the arteries as well as the blood flow to the heart using what are state of the art, what are still state of the art measures: quantitative arteriography to measure the blockages, and cardiac PET scans to measure the blood flow. And we found that the arteries became less clogged after a year and even less clogged after five years in the group that made these lifestyle changes to the degree that they made them, you know, and they got worse and worse in the randomized control group. And one of the interesting findings was I had thought, incorrectly as it turned out, that the younger people who had less severe disease would show more improvement when they changed their lifestyle. But it turned out not to be true. It turned out that it was even better than that, that no matter how sick they were, how old they were, the more they changed their lifestyle, the more they improved at any age, which is a very empowering 
promise to be able to make people. I mean, the more you change, I mean, yeah. promise is probably the wrong word because there's no guarantees in anything. But in general, the more you change, the more you improve. And we've now found that in every study that we've done over the last 40 years. And w were those changes in the the regression of the blockage, yes. was that paralleled by differences in like cardiac events and outcomes and sort of harder outcomes? Yes. Well, we found that the blood flow, the, the blockages became less clogged. And the blood flow is what's called a fourth power function of the radius or the how how wide the artery is. And so even small improvements in blockages cause really big improvements in blood flow because it's to the fourth power. You know, like two to the fourth power is two times two times two times two, et cetera. It's exponential. And likewise, you can get worse faster. You know, if, if the artery becomes more clogged, it's exponential in a bad way. And so we found a 400% improvement in blood flow to the heart of these patients and a two and a half times fewer cardiac events, heart attacks, drugs, bypass, stents, angioplasties, and so on, in the group that made these changes over a five-year period compared to those who didn't. Wow. So before we... And we published that in the Journal of the American Medical Association as well. But before we sort of dive in and look at the actual intervention in detail and what the diet was and all, and there was other lifestyle changes as well, and, and we go through all of those... Mm -hmm. Perhaps we, we address what the actual underlying cause is in the first place, right? From a, a, a nutrient point of view that is causing these blockages. We hear, you know, we hear one side of the fence saying it's saturated fat, it's, it's dietary cholesterol, um, animal protein. And then we hear the other side of the fence saying, no, hang on. These people that are developing cardiovascular disease, they're also having a very highly processed diet, lots of refined foods. You can't blame it on the saturated fat. You can't blame it on the cholesterol. Can we run through that? Yeah, sure. It's all of those things, actually. And one of the things I learned from the spiritual teacher was to ask a very simple, really radical question, which is, what is the cause? You know, radical really means to get to the root of something. And instead of literally or figuratively bypassing it, as we talked about earlier. And so... One, in this new book that I wrote, Undo It with my wife, Anne, uh, there's, it starts with a quote by Albert Einstein, which is one of my favorite, that says, if you can't make it simple, you don't understand it well enough. And I've been doing this work now for over four decades. So we wanted to radically simplify it and to say, what are the causes of not only heart disease, but so many other conditions? It's eat well, move more, stress less, love more. Boom, that's it. And I present this unifying theory in this book, which is also radical, that says that I was taught, like most doctors, to view heart disease and diabetes and high blood pressure and high cholesterol and prostate cancer and Alzheimer's disease as being fundamentally different diseases, different causes, different diagnoses, and different treatments. But what I'm saying here is they're really the same disease manifesting and masquerading in different forms because they all share the same underlying biological mechanisms, things like chronic inflammation, oxidative stress, changes in the microbiome, and telomeres, and gene expression, and angiogenesis, and uh, overstimulation of the sympathetic nervous system and immune function. And every one of these mechanisms, in turn, is directly influenced by what we eat, how we respond to stress, how much exercise we get, and how much love and support we have. And the more diseases we study and the more evidence we look at, the more science we have to prove that. And that's why I spend so much of my time doing research, because the whole point of science is to sort out what's true and what isn't, what's true and what isn't, what's real and what isn't. So because people can say all kinds of things. You know, it's a great way to sell books to tell people that meat is good for you, you know, and a lot of people have made a lot of money telling people what they want to hear. But, you know, my approach is always to tell you what's true and what's real. 
uh, not what's may, maybe uh, and what and not necessarily what's easy, but what's real and what's what, what we've proven actually works. Now, from the diet standpoint, the the healthiest diet is a whole foods plant based diet: fruits, vegetables, whole grains, legumes, as they come in nature. Uh, that are low in, they have no animal protein. They're generally low in fat, low in saturated fat, uh, low in refined carbs, and high in the good stuff. And they're literally 100,000 substances that are have anti-cancer, anti-heart disease, and anti-aging properties, and that's where you find them. Now, I debated Dr. Atkins a number of times before he died, and his autopsy, which was um, published, showed that he died of um, massive heart failure. And he didn't slip and hit his head. He slipped and hit his head because he had massive heart failure. And he was the low-carb guy, so I got pegged as the low-fat guy. It's never just about low-fat. It's all of these things. And it's not even just diet. It's about these uh, other aspects as well. But we agreed on one thing, which is that most people in the world get too many refined carbs, too much sugar and white flour and white rice. And the problem with that is that when you eat, when you go from, say, brown rice to white rice or from whole wheat flour to, to white flour, you're removing the fiber in the bran. And the fiber in the bran fill you up before you get too many calories. You're, you can only eat so many apples, you're going to get full before you get too many calories. But the fiber also slows the rate of absorption from your gut into your blood. So you get this nice slow rise in your blood sugar. It doesn't go so high and it comes down. But if you eat white flour or white rice or sugar or high fructose corn syrup or any concentrated sweetener, it gets it's like mainlining sugar. Your blood sugar zooms way up. Your pancreas senses that your blood sugar is too high, so it secretes insulin. And insulin lowers your blood sugar, which is what it's supposed to do. But it also creates a lot of other issues like chronic inflammation and a lot of these same mechanisms that we talked about that can lead to illness. So we agree that people get too many refined carbs and sugar. Where we disagree is what you replace them with. And, you know, I'd love to tell your listeners that that pork rinds and bacon and sausage are health foods, but they're not, you know. Or butter in your coffee. Or butter in your coffee or any of that stuff, you know. <laughs> and studies have shown that, again, saturated fat does, for every 1% increase in saturated fat, there's a 5% increase of the risk of heart disease. Walter Willett at Harvard looked at over 100,000 men and women in the Harvard physician study and nurses study, and, and they found that very clearly. Why, why do you think that that message is clouded? Why do you think there's people out there saying that saturated fat's not the problem? Americans were told to eat low fat and disease has increased. Well, journals, you know, unfortunately also are not immune from being corrupt in some ways, you know. The British Medical Journal, for example, published an article saying that saturated fat wasn't important, only trans fats were. So I actually pulled out the article and you look at it and that's what it says in the abstract. But if you look in the journal and you kind of read the fine print, which I always do, it basically looked at the data in two ways. One way was the raw data. And actually, when they looked at the raw data, they found that saturated fat was directly associated with heart disease, diabetes, prostate, breast, colon cancer, Alzheimer's, et cetera. But then they, quote, looked at the adjusted data. And that's the only data they reported in the abstract. And the problem is they adjusted for cholesterol. But since cholesterol and saturated fat usually travel together, if you adjust for one, you kind of wipe out the association of the other. And journals have this thing called an impact factor, which is basically how many people are reading them and what kind of impact does it have. And so they like to publish studies that they know are going to make headlines by telling people what they want to hear, like, oh, saturated fat's not a problem, eat all you want, you know or putting butter on the cover of Time Magazine or whatever, when the studies actually show something very different. Now, it goes even beyond the whole fat versus carbs thing, because the latest studies were showing that animal protein itself 
is harmful, particularly when it comes from red meat and processed meat. And one study showed that people who eat a lot of animal protein compared to those on a plant-based diet have a 75% higher risk of premature death from all causes and a 400 to 500% increased risk of premature death from diabetes, from prostate, breast, and colon cancer. So these are not subtle differences. And, and that's what you find when you look at the data. So is, is that the, I mean, there's probably a whole lot of mechanisms going on there, right? That in, in terms of the, the compounds that are in meat, but is there, is there strictly speaking, is there a difference between animal protein itself and plant protein? Yes. Animal protein creates inflammation, oxidative stress, all these mechanisms that we've been talking about. It stimulates that. Whereas plant-based protein actually gives you a double benefit because not only you're not eating the things that activate these mechanisms that cause us to get sick, but there are over 100,000 substances that are in plant-based proteins that are protective, like phytochemicals, bioflavonoids, carotenoids, retinols, isoflavones, genistein, lycopene, on and on and on that have anti-cancer, anti-heart disease, even anti-aging properties. We did the first study with um, Dr. Elizabeth Blackburn, who got the Nobel Prize for discovering what are called telomeres. And telomeres are the ends of our chromosomes that keep us, that, that, that determine how long we live. They're a little like, they're sometimes described like the plastic tip on the end of a shoelace that keeps your shoelace from unraveling. They're like the tips on the ends of our DNA that keep our DNA from unraveling. And as we get older, when the DNA replicates over and over again, they start to get shorter, the, the telomeres get shorter. And as our telomeres get shorter, our lives get shorter and the risk of premature death from pretty much everything goes up, up correspondingly. We found for the first, and, and, and studies had shown that stress can shorten your telomeres, improper diet can tell them, you know, high fat, high animal protein diet can shorten your telomeres, smoking cigarettes can shorten your telomeres, lack of exercise, you know, lack of uh, social support, all these things can make your telomeres shorter. In fact, they, they did a study where they looked at women who were taking care of parents with Alzheimer's or kids with autism, you know, women under chronic stress. And they found that the more stress the women felt and the longer they felt that way, the shorter their telomeres. And when they looked at the high stress versus the low stress women, they found their telomeres were so much shorter in the high stress women that it effectively shortened their lifespan by nine to 17 years. Not Gosh, a subtle difference. That's huge. But that was important finding. But even more interesting to me was it wasn't an objective measure of stress that determined its effect on their telomeres. It was the women's perception of it. In other words, you could have two women in very similar life situations, but one was meditating. They were eating the plant-based diet. They were exercising. They had a lot of love and support. They weren't smoking and so on. So they could buffer the effects of that stress. So it didn't affect them. It didn't affect their telomeres. And shorter telomeres have been linked with a premature risk of death from pretty much all chronic diseases. So we did a study, Dr. Blackburn and I, I said, well, look, if bad things can make your telomeres shorter, maybe good things can make them longer. And sure enough, we found that after just three months, the telomerase, the enzyme that repairs and lengthens telomeres, went up by 30%, which we published in The Lancet Oncology, one of the premier international medical journals. And after five years, we found for the first time we could actually lengthen telomeres. And when The Lancet published this, they sent a press release out worldwide and they called it reversing aging at a cellular level. So it's just another example. We did a study with Craig, published with Craig Venter, who was the first to decode the human genome. And we found that we could, in just three months, over 500 genes were changed, turning on the good genes to keep us healthy, turning off the bad genes that cause all these different mechanisms we've been talking about. 
over 500 genes in three months. And you know, so often people say things like, oh, I've just got bad genes, what can I do? Well, it turns out you can do a lot. Again, if you, there are switches that turn these genes off and on. They're called histone and non, they're proteins. Histone, non-histone, methylation, and so on. And if you can turn off a protein that, say, causes inflammation, it's as though you're changing your genes. And so when people say, oh, I've just got bad genes, what can I do? It turns out, again, not to blame, but to empower people, there's a lot we can do and how quickly and how dynamic, how dynamic these mechanisms are. And I would just tell your listeners, look, you know, read our studies, you know, get, get our new book on Do It. They're all referenced in there, but try it yourself, you know, do it for a week, you know, but really do it strictly for a week. So eat a plant-based diet just for a week, you know, low sugar, low refined carb, high in fruits and vegetables and whole grains and legumes as they come in nature. Do some meditation every day, do some exercise every day, spend more time with your friends and family and loved ones. And after a week, I promise you, you'll feel so much better. And then it'll come from your own experience. You go, oh, when I do this, I feel good. When I do that, I don't feel so good. So let me do more of this and less of that. And then it'll kind of cut through all the, the chatter and the clutter that you hear out there, especially around food. So we, we touched on saturated fat there and then and animal protein. What about dietary cholesterol? Because that's, that's the other one that people often ask about. And they, you know, there are various studies out there um, that <laughs> seem to show that cholesterol doesn't have a dietary cholesterol, doesn't affect blood serum cholesterol. And then there are others showing that it clearly does. Yeah, it clearly does. And it turns out that I'm on the nutrition committee of the American College of Cardiology, which is all the professional society of all the cardiologists. And one of my fellow colleagues, Neil Barnard, actually did a review of this. And he found that virtually every study that's been done on dietary cholesterol in the last 30 years that's been published was funded by the egg board. You know, and eggs are very high in cholesterol. So there was an obvious, uh, and we know already that funding uh, often influences the outcomes of people's studies. But we found in our study, in the lifestyle heart trial, the one where we found we could get reversal, that there was a direct correlation with fat intake and the amount of blockages in the arteries and dietary cholesterol and the amount of blockages in the arteries. And when you look at studies that aren't funded by the egg board, there's a review that came out or that will be coming out soon. It shows that that dietary cholesterol is directly associated, directly affects the blood cholesterol levels. Now, your body, it's not that cholesterol is bad. In fact, cholesterol is essential for your brain function, for nerve coverings, for it's the building block of sex hormones. Or, you know, and it's precisely because cholesterol is essential to your health that your body will always make all that you need. You can't get your dietary cholesterol too low by changing diet. But you can maybe by taking cholesterol-lowering drugs. And so it concerns me to some degree when people, you know, substitute drugs for changing lifestyle. I mean, if you have heart disease, then the, the drugs, out, the benefits outweigh the risks, you know, assuming that you're not willing to change your lifestyle. And we found in our randomized trials that we could get a 40% reduction in LDL cholesterol by lifestyle changes alone. And these patients showed reversal of their heart disease. The problem is, is that your body binds cholesterol to what are called cholesterol receptors on your cell membranes. And the number of the more receptors you have, the more efficiently your body can get rid of cholesterol in your diet. And it's a bell curve, like so many things in biology. Some people have tons of receptors. They can eat almost anything. They're never going to get heart disease. Those are the people who live to be 100. And you say, what do you eat every day? They say, I eat a dozen eggs and 12 pounds of bacon and whatever. And you say, well, gosh, maybe diet doesn't matter. Look what they're 100 and look what they're eating. Except everyone else who was eating that way and didn't have so many receptors and wasn't so efficient at getting rid of it didn't make it to 100. That's who you're left with is that small group of super efficient uh, metabolizers. Outlier. On the other end of the spectrum are people who generally have high cholesterol levels or heart disease. And they generally have fewer receptors, they're less efficient. And so those set receptors get saturated when you eat a lot of dietary cholesterol. So if you eat 
four eggs a week or five eggs a week, it's not going to make that much difference in your cholesterol level in your blood because it's already uh, saturated those receptors. But it does cause more blood cholesterol to be floating around that can end up clogging up your arteries. And so we found that David Blankenhort in what's called the CLAS or CLAS study was the first study showing that cholesterol-lowering drugs could also show some reversal of heart disease, found that all kinds of fat, saturated, monosaturated, polyunsaturated, and total fat were directly associated with the number of new blockages and the degree of severity of those blockages in the coronary arteries. Yeah, wow. So you, so all types of fat, right? So in, right. In, your, in your intervention trials, was there a certain percentage of fat making up the total calories? I know, um, you know, Dr. Esselstyn talks about like 10 or 15% of, of calories coming from fat. Was that similar in, in your trials? Yeah, there's nothing magic about that number. In fact, we add seeds and nuts, which are higher in fat, because a number of studies have shown that they're really protective. And I think it's because, you know, seeds and nuts are really life, you know, getting ready to burst out. They're germinative. Mm. And I think whatever energy there, you know, may offset the fact that they're high in fat. But in general, if you reduce all added oils, we include three grams a day of either fish oil or algae-based oils to provide the omega-3 fatty acids. Those are clearly protective. But you don't need much more than that. And so when you eat a a whole foods plant-based diet, and by the way, because these are all the same disease manifesting in different forms, it helps explain why it wasn't like we found one set of diet and lifestyle recommendations we would reverse heart disease and a different one for reversing prostate cancer or diabetes or high blood pressure or whatever. It was the same for all of them. And it's why you often find that patients often have more than one disease at the same time. They'll often have heart disease and high blood pressure and high cholesterol and be overweight and um, you know have uh, elevated blood sugar and so on. Because again, it's the same disease just manifesting in different ways or why whole countries, you know, in Colin Campbell's China study 50 years ago, people in China had almost none of these conditions. And yet when they start to eat like us and live like us, then they start to die like us. In other words, even if you're not genetically very efficient, as we talked about a moment ago and getting rid of dietary, say, fat and cholesterol, if you're not eating that much of it, it doesn't matter. But once you start to you know, adopt a more Western diet, which is generally high in all these things, then those genetic differences emerge. And it's why we've been able to find in 40 years of studies that with the same lifestyle intervention, we can not only help prevent, but actually reverse the progression of all these different diseases. And so I helped create a field called lifestyle medicine, which is using lifestyle changes not only to help prevent disease, but actually to reverse it. And, you know, in our country, in the U.S., 86% 86% of the $3.6 trillion we spent last year on healthcare is really mostly sick care because it's mostly, these are for chronic diseases that can be large. If you can reverse it, then you can prevent it at a fraction of the costs. And then the only side effects are good ones. And then we can make better care available to more people at lower costs. It's incredible. The oil, right, that we're, that you're talking about, and these trials are, are people that have developed chronic disease. Mm-hmm. The question that I get a lot of the time is, Simon, I eat a whole food plant-based diet. Is a little bit of oil in my diet going to be an issue, like olive oil or um, coconut oil or things like that? What, what do you what do you think about that in in terms of a whole food plant-based diet where there isn't a calorie surplus? Mm-hmm. Are those oils damaging in themselves? Well, I wrote a book before this one uh, called The Spectrum, and it was based on the finding in all of our studies that the more you change, the better you get at any age. And as we mentioned earlier, I thought incorrectly that the younger people with milder disease would do better, but I was wrong. At any age, the more you change, the more you improve to the degree you make these changes. So it's the ounce of prevention and the pound of cure. If you're trying to just stay healthy, I mean, if you said, do I have a little olive oil in my diet and obviously you're in great shape and you probably don't have any chronic diseases, I'd say it's not a big deal. 
But if you have a life-threatening condition, the reason we were the first to prove you could reverse all these different chronic diseases in randomized trials is that most people didn't go far enough. It takes a lot to reverse disease. It's hard. You know, that's the pound of cure. It takes a lot to reverse something. And so if you're trying to reverse disease, I think it's better to avoid all oils other than the omega-3 fatty acids and a little bit of seeds and nuts. If you're just trying to stay healthy, it's not all or nothing. You know, call, the, the whole language of behavioral change and food in particular has this kind of fascist quality to it. You know, it's like, you know, once you call foods good or bad, it's a very small step to saying I'm a bad person because I had bad food. I, <laughs> I cheated on my diet. You know, all this guilt and shame and humiliation is really toxic. Those are like, anger is one of the most toxic uh, human emotions. And so, you know, if you go on a diet, chances are you're going to go off it and then you beat yourself up because like, I didn't have enough willpower or whatever. So I said, look, Food is just food, but some foods are healthier than others. So in my last book, in The Spectrum, I categorized foods from the most healthy group one to the most unhealthy group five and said, what matters most is your overall way of eating and living. So where are you eating now, I'd say? And you'd say, well, I don't know, I'm eating you know, some red meat and some chicken and some vegetables. So I'd be eating mostly groups three or four. Say, okay, well, how much are you willing to change? Say, gosh, no one's ever asked me how much I'm willing to change. They're always telling me what to do. I'll say, I don't know, I'll eat less group four and five and more groups one through three. Great. Uh, How much exercise are you getting? Oh, not that much. How much are you willing to do? Oh, I'll walk a half an hour a day. Great. How much meditation and yoga are you doing? Uh, Zero. How much are you willing to do? I don't know, I'll meditate 10 minutes a day. Great. How much love and support do you have in your life? Well, not enough, but I'll spend more time with my friends and family. Say, boom, that's it. So we'll we'll check your whatever you're measuring. Like let's say you want to lose 10 pounds or get your cholesterol down 50 points, whatever it is, your blood pressure down 10 points, and say, okay, let's see if this degree of lifestyle change is enough to reverse the condition you're, or you know, to improve the condition you're trying to do. And again, it, it's not all or nothing. If you indulge yourself one day, it doesn't mean you cheated or you're bad or you fail. Just eat healthier the next. You don't have time to exercise one day, do a little more the next. You don't have time to meditate for an hour, do it for a minute. Whatever you do, there's a corresponding benefit. So let's say you do that for whatever degree of change that is for a month. And then we find that you wanted to lose 10 pounds, but you lost five, or your cholesterol came down 20 points instead of 50 or whatever. You say, great, you're moving the right direction. Now just move a little further on the healthy end of the spectrum, and you'll probably get the rest of the way there. But if you're trying to actually reverse a life-threatening condition, it really requires big changes. And when we do that, we find that our bodies often have this remarkable capacity to begin healing, and so much more quickly than we had once realized, to the degree that we make these changes. So I think you know, a few things that you just mentioned then sort of speak to the Mediterranean diet also getting, you know, fairly good results in terms of preventing or reducing the risk of cardiovascular disease, right? Like I'm often asked about that diet and yeah. usually my response is, well, it is significantly better than the standard American diet. Yes. Um, but it's, things are a spectrum. Is that is that how you look at the Mediterranean diet? Yes, it is. The standard American diet has the great acronym of being the SAD diet uh, for SAD, standard American diet. Um, but the Mediterranean diet is definitely a better diet than what most Americans and most Australians eat but it doesn't go far enough to reverse heart disease. Now, there was an unfortunate article that came out in the New England Journal of Medicine, which they actually had to retract, and then they republished it a few years later, called the PREDIMED study. And the headline was, Mediterranean Diet Better Than Low-Fat Diet in Preventing Heart Disease. Remember that? Now, I actually looked at that data, and I've spoken to the guy who, who, who directed it. And what they didn't tell you is that they pulled the stroke data, and for, first of all, the low-fat da- diet was not low-fat. They went from 39 to 37% fat, hardly even a reduction, much less, it's still pretty high in fat. They replaced fat with sugar, which is never a good idea. But even with that, they showed no reduction in heart disease rates. They only showed reduction in stroke rates. But because they, when they reported the data, they 
pulled together the stroke data and the heart disease data, it made it look like the heart disease data was coming down. Because they said, when we, when we looked at the stroke and heart disease data, it was less than in the low-fat diet. But if you look at it further, you found that there was no difference in heart disease rates between the two groups. It was only a difference in stroke rates. And the reason for the stroke rates being less is that when you're eating more omega-3 fatty acids, which you do on a, on a Mediterranean diet, or my diet too, for that matter, it helps to keep blood from clotting, and blood clots account for 90% of strokes. So they did show a reduction in stroke rates, but they did not show any difference in heart disease rates. We still have the only diet and lifestyle program that's been proven in randomized trials to actually reverse the progression of heart disease. That's the bottom line. Yeah, gosh. The, and, the, and by the way, there was another article in the New England Journal that looked at what happens in your arteries on different diets, on an Atkins or a Paleo or a Keto, which yeah, are all just really yeah, the same I saw this thing. one. The, you know, what was the other diet in that one? The zone was that? Did that have the zone diet in there? No, that was a different. That was study. a different study. That was yeah. a weight loss one. But I'll, we'll talk about that too if you want. <laughs> yeah, we can get it. But in this diet, they, in this study, in the, and I rep, reproduced that picture in my new book, in, in the Undo It book. On the top was a diagram of what happens on a whole foods plant based diet, and your arteries are healthy and clean, and the blood's flowing through normally, and there's no clogging. On a standard American diet, they're partially clogged. But on an Atkins, Keleo, Paleo, whatever name you want to give it, diet, they're severely clogged, even if they lose weight and even if their cholesterol levels. Are it shows that in the paper. It shows that in the paper. It's in the book. Actually, I'll yeah, just wow. show it to you now. See? Yeah, wow. Top page, is page 68. There you go. Yeah. And that was in the New England Journal of Medicine. So, you know, again, I'd love to be able to tell people that these things are, are good for you. There was a study that came out just a few weeks ago that looked at what are called TMAO levels. And TMAO is a substance produced by your gut that is actually more strongly linked with heart disease even than cholesterol levels. And they compared TMAO levels on three different diets, on a Atkins paleo keto diet, on a Mediterranean diet slash zone, I mean, a South Beach diet, or on a Ornish diet, what they called it. And they found that on our diet, the TMAO levels were low and normal, on the Mediterranean diet, they were higher. And on the Atkins paleo keto diet, they were really high. And it's just another example of how, you know, a whole foods plant-based diet, the more mechanisms we look at, the more science we look at, the more evidence we have to show that that's really the healthiest way for most people to eat. And l let's just quickly go over that other study, the one the, with the zone diet on, on the weight loss. Oh, you mean just looked at weight loss in different diets? Yeah. yeah well, the problem was in, in those diets, they're only... And that was a study that came out of Stanford where they compared the Atkins and Zone and Ornish diets. And they found that weight loss was really comparable on, on all diets. But most of the people really weren't following the diet, any of the three diets. And so that's the problem when you do studies like that. It's important to actually say there's two separate questions. One is how easy it to follow a diet and what happens if you really do. So there was a study that Kevin Hall did in the, uh, at the National Institutes of Health where they put people in what's called a metabolic ward, where they could actually control what people were eating for you know, a period of time. And they found, because people out there are saying, you know, calorie for calorie, carbs are going to cause, a carb calorie is going to cause you to get more weight than a, a, a fat calorie, right? I'm sure you've heard that. So he found out that, in fact, all calories are not alike, but in the opposite of what these people are saying, that calorie for calorie, people lost 67% more weight by eating carbs than by eating fat. Uh, that fat makes you fat. And it makes you fat because, first of all, it's more dense in calories. Fat has nine calories per gram and protein carbs have only four. So if you go from a 40% fat diet to one that's much lower in fat, you're going to be eating, even if you eat the same volume of food, you're going to be eating fewer calories because the food is less dense in calories. And so you can eat whenever you're hungry, you can eat till you're full and you can lose weight and keep it off because 
you're full, you know, because the food is, the volume of the food fills you up before you get too many calories. But also fat calories are metabolized differently and they cause you to gain weight more than carbs do. And we're talking about good carbs, fruits and vegetables, mm. not the refined carbs, you know, sugar and white flour and things like that. Yeah, and I think that's one of the, I guess, great benefits of a whole food plant-based diet is that, you know, lots of trials have showed that people with don't have to count calories and they can still lose weight. Yeah, we found the average person in our reversing heart disease study over uh, lost 24 pounds in the first year. They kept half that weight off five years later. That's actually better weight loss data than Weight Watchers or things like that. And yet we're not focusing on weight the way they are. We're focusing on health. And when you focus on health, everything gets better, including but not limited to weight. Whereas you can lose weight on an Atkins or paleo or keto diet, but you're mortgaging your health when you do that. Just like you can lose weight by smoking cigarettes is a good way to lose weight. You know, uh, chemotherapy, getting depressed, you know, getting divorced is a good way to lose weight. You know, there are lots of ways of losing weight that aren't good for you. And so what you want to do is find a way that you can lose weight and keep it off in ways that actually enhance your health rather than harm it. You spoke about once chronic disease has developed that, you know, quite significant changes in lifestyle required and in nutrition to get reversal of Correct. disease. And and some people would say that your dietary approach is radical or extreme or hard to adhere to. But what what have you noticed in terms of in your trials, but also in your clinic with the adherability of this, this dietary framework? Yeah, well, that's a very common uh, concern that people express. And they'll, or doctors will say, you know, I can get my patients to take their, their cholesterol-lowering drugs, but there's no way they're going to change their diet and lifestyle to this degree. And the fact is, if you actually look at the drug company's own data, half to two-thirds of people who are prescribed cholesterol-lowering drugs like Lipitor and other statins are not taking them after just four to six months. And yet we've been training hospitals and clinics and physician groups around the country since 2011, well, actually since 1993. Medicare uh, has been covering my program now since 2011, and most insurance companies are now paying for it. And we're, our program is nine weeks long. People come twice a week for nine weeks, and then they're done. And yet we found that 94% of those 72 hours are completed, and a year later, 85 to 90% of people are still following it in, in, in around the country, in Mississippi, in, in Arkansas, in South Bend, Indiana, you know, in places like that, not just in major cities. And the reason, and people say, well, that's crazy. I mean, most people think that the easier it is, then the more likely people are to follow it. But, you know, we're always making choices. I mean, you came all the way here from Australia, you know, you could be a thousand different things, but hopefully this is, you know, worth your time. And because these mechanisms that we've been talking about, these underlying biological mechanisms are so dynamic, when you make big changes in your lifestyle, most people find they feel so much better so quickly in ways that really matter to them that they say, okay, that's a choice worth making. You know, I mean, I've got a couple of kids. You say, was that easy? We say, no, that was like the hardest thing I've ever done. It still is. But it's also the most meaningful thing I've ever done. Sometimes when things are hard, they're meaningful. And so, and you literally connect the dots between what you do and how you feel. So when you make lifestyle changes like this, first of all, if you have heart disease, your angina goes away. We talked about that earlier. For someone who can't walk across the street without getting chest pain or play with their kids or make love with their spouse or go back to work and within a couple of weeks, they're essentially pain-free. They say, well, you know, I like eating junk food, but not that much because what I gain is so much more than what I give up. Your brain gets measurably bigger in just a few weeks, particularly the part of your brain called the hippocampus that controls memory. Your skin gets more blood flow. You look 10 or 20 years younger. Your heart gets more blood flow. Even your sexual organs get more blood flow. I, I cite a new film that I'm, um, that I'm uh, one of the medical experts in 
called Game Changers in my new book that'll come out in the next few months. That was done by James Cameron, the legendary director who did, you know, Terminator and Titanic yeah, and yeah, Avatar yeah. and all these great films. Yeah, I had his wife on the show. So. Oh, Susie. Yeah. Well, I wrote the forward to her new book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, they're both great. Yeah. And so uh, she may have talked about this, but... I think, I'm not sure. Let's see where it goes. Okay. <laughs> so um, they they became vegan about 10 years ago because they're explorers as well as, he's an explorer as well as a filmmaker. And he learned that more global warming is caused by livestock consumption than all forms of transportation combined. So he went on it mainly to help the planet and they've had so much energy. He's actually making avatars two, three, and four at the same time. We went to the movie set, got to see it. It was great. I mean, he's sleeping at the set. He's got incredible energy now. And so he made this film called Game Changers because one of the biggest myths about eating a plant-based diet is you're kind of a wuss and you don't get enough protein, right? So he has all these elite athletes who raised their game when they went on a plant-based diet and became Olympic medalists and heavyweight boxing champions. And uh, one of the hosts, uh, the narrators all the way through, one of the mixed martial artists, uh, uh, national uh, champion when he went on a plant-based diet to help him heal faster. And um, anyway, and so there's this one great scene in the movie where he's got these three elite athletes in their mid-20s, and he gave them a single meat-based meal and then he measured, uh, this urologist measured the frequency and hardness of erections they got at night when they slept. Because <laughs> it's a normal function when guys sleep that they get erections. You know, just it kind of keeps all the plumbing in order. <laughs> and then they did the same thing the next night with a single plant-based meal and did the same thing. And what they found in all three guys, they had 300 to 500% more frequent erections and 10 to 15% harder erections. And these are guys in their mid-20s who, you know, generally don't have issues anyway. Well, you've just sold it to every single uni student listening. So. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently the film crew went on a plant-based diet after shooting this. Yeah, well. From one meal. Okay, that's how dynamic these mechanisms are. And so often people are told, you know, eat a healthy diet to prevent something bad from happening 20 years from now, you know, or 30 years from now or whatever, or you live to be 86 instead of 85. And that doesn't really motivate most people. Mm. But if what you gain is so much more than what you give up, if your athletic performance improves, if your sexual performance improves, if you look younger, if you feel better. And by the way, if you're helping the planet, it's so easy to feel overwhelmed when we hear things like, oh, you know, in 10 years, we're going to hit a tipping point and we'll, you know, we're all going to die. You know, I, I went on the board of the San Francisco Food Bank years ago when I learned that one out of five children in the Bay Area goes to bed hungry every night. This is a very affluent area. And, it's, and it turns out that when I looked into it, there's enough food to feed everybody. No one need go hungry. But it takes 10 to 14 times more resources to make a pound of meat-based protein than plant-based protein. So it's, again, if you, and one of the reasons why Susie wrote that book is just have one meal a day, you know, just have a, a meatless Monday, even if you're not ready to go all the way to plant-based, just have a, an occasional meal that's plant-based. To the degree you do that, you're helping the planet. It's good for you. It's good for the planet. You're helping feed the hungry. And by the way, you're preventing and reversing all these chronic diseases. Like, you know, what could be better than that? And that really imbues those choices with meaning. And then so like, instead of something like, what can I do as one person? You say, actually, you can do a lot and here's how. Yeah, I like, I like how you talk about what can you gain out of the lifestyle because it's easier to start zooming in on what you're removing and leaving behind right. and then what you're going to miss. Right? Well, see, fear is not a sustainable motivator. I used to get into friendly discussions with Al Gore when, after An Inconvenient Truth came out because it really got everybody's attention about global warming and then people kind of forgot about it, you know? And the reason is, it's just too scary to think something bad, like the end of humanity, as we know it, you know, or in a personal level that you're going to get a heart attack. You know, if you say, put down that cheeseburger, you're going to get a heart attack, or put down that cigarette, you're going to get lung cancer. And that just, you know, for a month after someone's had a heart attack or, you know, an emergency room visit, they'll do pretty much anything that the doctor asks them to do. But it only lasts about a month or two because 
fear is not a sustainable motivator. I mean, we all know we're going to die, right? I mean, the mortality rate is still, what, 100%? Yeah. <laughs> it's one per person. We're all going to die. But it's not something we think about most of the time because it's too scary. If someone has something bad happen to them, they'll think about it. But even then, only for like a short time. And so what motivate, what makes sustainable changes is not fear of dying. It's joy of living, joy and pleasure and love and feeling good and better sex. You know, you get hotter sex in a cooler planet, you know, when you make these changes, that's sustainable. Telling somebody that they're going to have a heart attack or something really bad is going to happen to them years down the road is not sustainable. And so we, we find that paradoxically, it's sometimes easier to make big changes all at once than small gradual changes, even though that goes against the conventional wisdom. Because when you make big changes all at once, most people find they feel so much better so quickly, it reframes the reason for making them from fear of dying or fear of something really bad happening to joy and pleasure and love and feeling good. And that's really what makes it sustainable. So talk, talk to me about the outside of nutrition, the other lifestyle changes in your trials and what you're doing clinically with the patients that you see. And then I want to sort of circle back and see how you, you see this whole system changing and how doctors can, can counsel their patients and encourage these lifestyle changes under the current system where there, there perhaps isn't a whole lot of one-on-one -on -one time, yeah. um, you know, 15 minute consultations. I'd, I'd love to understand how you see it all, all working in the ideal world. Well, I think there's a convergence of forces that after 40 years of doing this work finally makes it the right idea at the right time. On the one hand, eight randomized trials have shown that stents and angioplasties really don't work in patients who have stable heart disease. They don't prolong life, prevent heart attacks, or even reduce chest pain. In people who have early stage prostate cancer, maybe one out of 50 men benefit from surgery radiation. The other 49 often get maimed in the most personal ways. They're often impotent, they can't have sex or they're incontinent, they, they, uh, you know, they have to wear a diaper for no benefit at huge costs. Getting your blood, diabetes and, and prediabetes, metabolic syndrome affect half of Americans and, and half of Australians today. And yet getting your blood sugar down with drugs doesn't help prevent the horrible complications of diabetes, you know, amputations and impotence and heart attacks and strokes and kidney failure nearly as well as if you can get it down with diet and lifestyle. So I spent... 16 years with Medicare, going back and forth with them, they were evaluating our program. And I'm very grateful to them for creating a new benefit category. So now Medicare will cover my program in hospitals and clinics around the country. And so we're training, we're getting bigger changes in lifestyle, better clinical outcomes, bigger cost savings, and better adherence than anyone's ever shown. It's working. And if you change reimbursement, you change medical practice and medical education. So most doctors, you have like eight to 10 minutes to see a new patient. You don't have time to talk about anything, really. You know, you listen to the heart and lungs, you, you know, go through the problem list, you write a prescription, they're out the door. It's not fun to practice that way for the doctor or the patient. In our model, it's 72 hours, but the doctor isn't really spending most of his or her time doing that. It's done with a, the doctor is kind of the quarterback, but the team includes a meditation teacher, exercise physiologist, dietitian, clinical psychologist, and so on. And they all work together as a team. People come twice a week for four hours at a time to get the program. And now that Medicare is paying for it, most of the other insurance companies are as well. And it's working. So we're really trying to create a whole new paradigm that's more caring and compassionate. And we also found that even though it's, it's more expensive to do this, it actually cuts costs in half in the first year. Finally, from, from here, I know that you're working on a, a randomized controlled trial. Yes, we're doing the first randomized trial to see whether we can reverse uh, early stage Alzheimer's disease. And my mom died of Alzheimer's, so I have a particular interest in this. I probably have the gene for it, for that matter. 
And you know, when you lose your memories, you lose everything. And as our population ages, Alzheimer's becomes more and more common. And there are no good drugs, no effective drugs for either treating it or for preventing it. But Alzheimer's has the same mechanisms that all these other diseases that we've been talking about, chronic inflammation, oxidative stress, change in the microbiome, and so on. You know, your microbiome actually secretes amyloid that ends up in your brain. So I'm hopeful to be able to see if we can show that, if we could show that we could stop or reverse the progression of Alzheimer's, that would be huge. Because as I mentioned, that there's no other alternative right now. And it would be very personally meaningful for me to do that. So we're in the middle of doing that study now. And if anybody's listening to this and they happen to live in the San Francisco Bay Area and they know or they have early stage Alzheimer's, give us a call. Just go to ornish.com, our website, and there's a link to the study and it's all done for free to them. They're looking for some more subjects. We're still looking for more yeah. volunteers. So what's the, what's the sort of methodology of the study? It's the same, uh, it's 100 men and women. Uh, half get the program, the same lifestyle intervention that's in my books half don't. We test them at the beginning and after 20 weeks, and then we cross over the control group. They now get it for 20 weeks. The first group gets it for 20 more weeks, and then we test them a third time. Dan, it's uh, been an absolute pleasure having you on the show. You as well. Thank you. Thank you so much for everything that you've done, as I said at the start, and all the contribution that you've made to science. You've certainly been pushing the boulder uphill for (laughs) for many decades now and, and, and certainly paving the way. So, Thank you so much for your work. If anyone is not already connected with you and would like to do so, where can they find you? Uh, Go to Ornish.com and uh, get the new book, Undo It. Uh, Everything we've talked about is in there. And like I say, awareness is the first step in healing. Thank you so much for raising awareness and shining a light in the darkness. I'm really grateful. Been a pleasure. Take care. There you go, friends. I love how Dr. Ornish places such emphasis on all aspects of our lifestyle. Getting your nutrition on point really is just the beginning. Creating meaningful relationships, introducing methods into your life to manage stress, finding your purpose and moving your body are all equally important and really come together to help us create the healthiest body and mind possible. I also love how Dr. Ornish reframes lifestyle changes. It's not about giving things up. It's about what you're going to gain, and the upside truly is enormous. I really encourage anyone looking to improve their health to spend some time thinking about their entire lifestyle. Write down what small changes you can make to move in the right direction. As Dean stated, you don't have to make drastic moves overnight unless you want to. If you don't exercise and you start doing 20 minutes walking a day, you don't eat any plants but start adding two to three vegetables or fruit to every meal or if you eat meat with every single meal but start doing one plant-based meal a day if you do not ever sit in silence and start doing three to five minutes of meditation a day if you don't sit down with your family for dinner but start doing this once a week this is all moving in the right direction write this stuff down break it down and make small achievable goals and then go from there. When you make healthy changes, your mind and body, it feels better, it truly does. And for most people, this is all the motivation that's needed to then make further changes and keep on progressing towards the end goal of the lifestyle that you desire. It all starts with us. We have so much control. All right, friends, I hope you enjoyed this episode. Thank you so much, as always, for tuning in. It, It really is 
an honor and a privilege to be able to share these conversations with you each week. If you did find today's episode enjoyable, Dean and I would love to hear from you. Tag us in your story on Instagram or send us a direct message. And if you haven't already and get a spare minute, please leave a review on iTunes. It really does help the show become more discoverable. For those who have already left a review, thank you so much. That's it for today. Catch you in the next episode.